Hello, everyone, and welcome to Hockey Jersey Addicts, the podcast and support group for the addicted hockey jersey fan to talk twill, wool, acrylic, and polyester. Join us as we share what we've learned and uncovered about the game of hockey through collecting, restoring, customizing, and selling hockey jerseys. Around here, no jersey is too small or too big, too new or game-worn, too loud or too proud. We see everyone as equal and explore a diverse range of topics ongoing in the hockey community. We'll also dive into the vault with hockey history, trivia, and reminisce as much as possible about the grails we've got, the thrift store finds, and the watchlist wants. So put on some polyester, give us a listen, and if you like what you hear and want more, make sure to subscribe and follow us on your podcast station and social media of choice at Hockey Jersey Addicts. And remember, you miss 100% of the jerseys you don't collect. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. And it's Black History Month. Today's episode is going to be a very important discussion with an important individual about an important initiative. Today, we've got on Rico Phillips, who is the Director of Cultural Diversity and Inclusion for the Ontario Hockey League. And he's also an advisory board member to the Hockey Diversity Alliance. Now, Rico Phillips came onto the hockey radar for a lot of us when he won the Willie O'Ree Award in 2019, which is an award given out annually by the NHL to the individual who, quote, through the game of hockey has positively impacted his or her community, culture, or society. So we've got a very, very important guest who's also extremely knowledgeable, and we're really looking forward to the discussion that we're going to share with you all today. We're going to sit down and discuss some of the adversity that Rico's had to overcome as a black hockey player and referee in his earlier years being introduced to the game. We're also going to talk about how the NHL got involved to help Rico grow his inner city youth hockey program that he put together in Flint, Michigan, called the Flint Inner City Youth Hockey Program, which provides hockey opportunities to all people from the inner city youth um, area of Flint, Michigan, regardless of race, religion, or creed. And we're also going to hear from him about some ways that other people around the hockey community in his life, particularly Willie O'Ree, has given him guidance and allowed him to find his voice in the Black Lives Matter and the hockey diversity movement that's taking place right now. And then we're going to finish it off by talking with Rico on some ways all of us, no matter our roles and backgrounds, um, can take right now, some what actions we can take right now to become involved or more involved in making hockey a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive sport. So just want to thank Rico for coming on. I also want to thank all of our listeners for listening to the end as we go through some very important and difficult topics to talk about and all in an effort to make and progress our sports. So thank you, Rico, and thank you to our listeners and enjoy our episode. (music) 
Hey, Dan, how are you? Hey, Rico, I'm great. How are you today? Good, man. Can you hear me okay or should I put earbuds in, you think? You sound great. If you can okay. hear me okay. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Look at this wall you've created. It's beautiful. <laughs> so, so basically, I was, uh, you know, through the world of uh, uh, virtual meetings, I realized I had a really drab wall behind me. This used to be my son's uh, room when he was a kid. It's, it's actually amazing blue. The other wall is blue because we're Michigan fans here. Mm-hmm. So he took his stuff down and I was just looking at a, at a wall. And uh, I said, well, what the heck can I put up there? That's kind of temporary because we're going to end up changing this room around. And it's perfect. <laughs> so ironically, um, you know, you said something about wearing jerseys. This usually is up on the wall. Um, and maybe I should tell a story about the Jersey a little bit. Um, so as you know, it says Grambling and this is actually, uh, you know, embroidered in there. It's not like a, yeah. a screen print. And, um, this guy says, Hey, I have a Jersey for you. And he, I've known him ever since I first got into hockey long ago. And I'll tell the story in a minute, but, um, you know, this is after I won the award and I was like, are you going to be at the Firebirds game tonight? And I was like, yeah, 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 I'll be there. And, and so he says, I got something for you. He brings me this jersey. And I was like, where did that come from? And of course, I thanked him. I said, where did that come from? And he says, oh, my wife, she she collects jerseys. And she found this one. And man, I thought of you like, you know, I don't know anybody that played for the team. So I just thought of giving it to you. And I said, well, absolutely, man. Thank you so much. I was so impressed. I was like, Grambling had a hockey team? Get the hell out of here. So yeah. I started. I started looking up Grambling's hockey team, and there's no such thing as Grambling hockey. This <laughs> jersey came from. I ranks in the correct colors, you know, color scheme. So somebody must just say, "Hey, I want me a Grambling hockey jersey." So I wear it with pride. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. I noticed. Uh, I, I love that story too, and and that's usually what's so great about hockey jerseys is it might be a piece of polyester, but there's usually a really great story behind it yeah, or sure. it's, it's a symbol in, in some way for some moment in the game or a memory or, or some way to bring people together. I noticed from the ones on your wall, the Flint mm-hmm. fire one was given to your uh, firehouse by the Red Wings yeah. along with a f- donation check yeah, uh, yeah. to your f- foundation. Right. Yeah, so you've done your homework, man. Good job. <laughs> yeah, so like you said, every one of those jerseys are symbolic for me up there. And that one was given to me by uh, a host of Red Wings. There's four of them there. There's uh, Dylan Larkin, the captain, uh, Anthony Mantha, um, Anthony Anthonisio, who's now mm-hmm. down, I think he's uh, playing in uh, L.A. maybe. Anyways, and uh, Tyler Bertuzzi. So, I've, you know, it was cool. That was just that moment. Um so, like, if you go back in time, I, you know, I always wanted to be a firefighter. Mm-hmm. And, but I, I was into hockey before I became a firefighter. I just started, like, a couple years, a few years before I became a firefighter. But it was part of me already. I was already refereeing and stuff. And, like, in, I remember in my interviews, I put that down in my resume that I was an official in, with USA Hockey. And that was impressive to them all. You know, like, that was something. But it was. You know, even though I was doing little kids. And uh, anyways, um, I never imagined it was my uh, furthest from my imagination to um, have four Detroit Red Wings playing um, ball hockey on the floor 
of the station at the fire station I went to when I was seven years old, man. I uh. stood and I remember as we were playing the game, I just stopped and just was looking around and watching. Like these guys weren't just hey, they were playing, man. It was, <laughs> Serious man, you know what I mean? Not really, but they were competitive. Everyone on in and the guys that we that chose to play, for firefighters, excuse me, that chose to play, they were having the time of their life. And I just stopped. How did this, how did I get here, man? It's and so as you know, they gave the jersey and and uh gave and uh I at first I was gonna display at the fire department and um but I talked to some of my colleagues who told me, Rico, you earned this opportunity, it's your jersey. Um, no one's going to appreciate it as much as you, even if it's, if it's sat in here for 20, 30 years, nobody would know why, why we have a Jersey from the Detroit Red Wings. So, so I, uh, I took that as I better own it. So, <laughs> uh, so I do own it and I'm so proud of it. That's great. It's, it's both of them with for me is what it does. Definitely. Oh, definitely. I mean, it, it, is that the one you wore during the ceremonial puck drop? So or the one above it is, is the one above it. Yeah. yeah. And that has my name on it. And like I said, uh, for me, the, re, the, I, I turned the one around with uh, Flint fire on it because that's where the intersection happens. And, mm -hmm. and like the Willie or award is a perfect example. Um, I had a big, um, um, support system within the hockey community, but I don't think I could have won that award without the support of my entire community from teaching fire safety for mm -hmm. well over 20 years uh, of my career, not only kids, but adults and everyone in between and, and, um, and many different, um, uh, been a part of many different, um, fundraisers, community events. I mean, not just be a part of them, but organizing them. So mm -hmm. it all came to play out when I, you know, had to have some support, um, in a way of online voting, to win the award and the local media just went nuts over it and it just spread like wildfire. And, um, I was just so lucky. I mean, like the Flint firebirds, mm -hmm. like a huge supporter. I mean, it was on their billboard outside the arena. So it's on our, one of our major interstates that comes by the arena. So anybody that drove through said, what, you know, what do what about Rico vote for Rico? And it's me with Billy, uh, picture of me and Willie O'Ree. <laughs> it was pretty cool, man. I mean, my first time I drove by, I almost wrecked. I was like, holy, sh you know, I'm like, <laughs> when I see it, I said, man, you gotta be kidding me. So I had to drive back around and get a picture with it. It was, um, that it was that, uh, special, you know, I, I couldn't believe that the moment was happening. And during the voting process, I could just feel, I, you could just feel that it was special, man. I don't know how to describe it. I'm not going to say I knew I was going to win because there's no way of knowing that. Um, but I could just sense that um, if I was not going to win, I was still going to have, you know, told our story to so many people. And that's what was most important. Yes, agreed. And I think that's, part of your acceptance speech, I noticed you said any one of us nominees could be up here because it's, yeah. it's true. There's no way that that award is really there to recognize, in my opinion, the one who does a better yeah. job than anyone right. else, as much as just, we need to recognize someone and some yeah. cause, but what we're really trying to do here is raise awareness over yeah. all of the ways that hockey is trying to combat whatever it is it could be something mental illness related yeah. dei related yeah. it could be 
any one of these causes that are going out there and hockey's great. Uh, it's a great vehicle for change. And, uh, I'm very grateful that you were the recipient though, because it allowed me to learn more about you, what you're doing. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for what you've chosen to do with your time post-retirement, but even, even going back to the eighties with your involvement in hockey, it's, it's meant a lot to the community. So on, on behalf of a, of a white guy from Canada, I just want to say thank (laughs) you so much for everything you're doing. You're, you're, you know, you're welcome. Um, My mom used to tell me that when someone, um, you know, says something nice, uh, you just say you're welcome because the the bottom line is, um, it's something about um, certain people that um, come along in this world that get an opportunity to really um, take all the finer things in life, even work through the struggles that make up a person and then get opportunities to to kind of be a beacon of hope. And I didn't never set out for that, but trust me, that was not when I, when I first got in the sport, I knew I was different from the moment I got in the sport, right? Um, for my color base. Mm-hmm. I, I was an athletic trainer, a student trainer. So um, it was a running joke. It was the eighties that I was the only black guy in the rink anywhere we went. Mm-hmm. And so I knew what I was getting myself into, so to speak in that regard. But there was something about the sport that was offering me this level of, I mean, just looking at the players, the commitment that they have to, to skill, mm-hmm. uh, the teamwork that has to happen. Now, you can, I've watched some great hockey players, but when they try to play it alone, that's worth crap, man. And so the teamwork is, is really uh, in a whole different divine way. I mean, it's, you can see it in soccer some, but with the sense that the speed of the game um, – with that level of teamwork, it just, it, it just hooked me in right away. And then I seen the camaraderie of the players, how they, I've been a part of other teams because I was an athletic trainer, but they hockey players seem to be different. And so um, I took that as that was the reason I wanted to get in the sport. I didn't know they have any sense of being able to help change the sport um, in any way, shape or form. So I can't tell you, sit back and say, you know, in, in 80, whatever year I started in this, I say that cause I'm getting older. Um, when I started this journey with hockey, um, I just wanted to have fun like everyone else. And, um, what I found out though, it wasn't long before I found out that the fun was limited for people of color and especially during my era. And so, um, for many years, I was the only person of color in any rank that I was in, uh, especially when I was refereeing games. Um, I, in fact, playing too. I mean, all my hockey buddies are white, white, uh, guys. They were in my age group, obviously we're painting in our age groups, but the point was, is that I, um, I made some errors, my, my own self that I had to learn from in order to feel like I could fit in. I had to normalize making fun of being the only black player or being black mm. alone and just being the only black player or being black. And I would joke right along with them. And so that I would ease tension in the locker room when I came in the locker room, because I could tell they were like, uh, who's, who's this black guy in here? And what does he want? What, can he play? You know, all of a sudden, all these things, variables that I know what's going on, I could see and feel it. Right. So, I would start to make fun of the fact that I was the only black guy and little did I know that once I become a little bit more mature, how much damage I had done, not only Mm -hmm. to myself, 
but to normalize in bigotry <laughs> in my circles, uh, in my hockey circles. So it took a lot of work to recognize those things. And one of the things I wanted to change was, as I call it now, I, would, I don't know that I call it that this back then, but change the narrative who the people are that I was seeing at the rink. So as I refereed 10, 12 years, I was the only person of color. To this day, and to this day, 34 years into the game of refereeing, it's, it's a game within itself. I've never refereed with a person of color. Wow. And I live in Michigan, Flint, Michigan. Uh, for those of uh, the folks that are paying attention to this podcast, it's in the center of the state of Michigan. So it's a, it's a extremely diverse community now. Um, um, in fact, it's probably um, tilted more an impoverished community uh, more than uh, a blue collar or working class community. So with that said, um, but along the way, it wasn't always like that. It was a working class community where you had the, you know, the automobile factories and, and whatnot that made up our town. And so anyways, what I'm trying to say is that <clears throat> when I looked across the landscape of the kids who played, they were all suburban kids that were uh, affluent mm-hmm. and they looked the same, dressed the same. Their parents were the same, mostly just just thinking that the world was only theirs. By that, I mean, they'd be willing to shout, and you know, I mm-hmm. know sports brings us out in every sport, but shout some of the most rude things you can imagine uh, during a, a, a 10-year-old hockey game. Yeah. I've heard them, you know, things like, why don't you go ref basketball where you belong? Coon, you know, what? <laughs> I, I'm, at the time, I was like 20-something when these things were being said. The first time I ever heard a racial slaw, uh, taunt, or slur, rather, uh, aimed at me outside of any, any, you know, aimed at me in an angry way or hateful way was uh, my first year as a referee, my first two months as a referee. Then that's so nuts. I wanted to quit. I wanted to leave hockey that day. And luckily I had a senior partner who threw the guy out of the game. He was a coach, his assistant coach called me over, I blew the call. And then he starts ranting at me and I'm like, I don't know. You know, he's asking me why I didn't make time. I'm like, I don't know. And then he says, well, you know, and then throws the in-bomb at me and says he's going to kick my ass in the parking lot. And I'm like, wow. And I was 17, man. I was like, well, and he's a grown man. I don't even know what to do with myself at that moment. Do I want to fight him? No, I can't fight a grown man. I'm not, I'm in stripes. I'm on skates. All these things are wrong. I mean, where's my boys at? You know, all of a sudden, all these things because I'm a kid. Man, oh, but the most important thing, I felt alienated and alone, like so many people that have been in that position, whether you're mm-hmm. black or just felt different based on whatever the reason is. And so little did I know that that was going to be the platform that I could use moving forward to tell, tell my story. Like, you know what I mean? Like I had some real life um, occurrences where my partners will come up and remind me, you know, when I'm roughing a game, remind me before the opening face off that the puck goes down, it doesn't go up like jump ball. And I'd laugh about it. And then to the point where I realized something was happening, I wasn't getting opportunities to go to, to the camps so I can become a better official. So I wouldn't be this clumsy skating black referee out here that everybody can make fun of. I, I didn't realize until all of a sudden I seen people are coming in behind me that came in with similar skill, but now they're going to camps and they're better themselves. Now they're in doing playoff games. And while I'm still, I'm done right at the end of the season. After yeah. doing it 
13, 14 years. And so I was like, what ha- what's happening here? And I had a defining moment then, and I don't tell the story all the time, but it was very defining. I was refereeing a game and it's hard to describe these towns without, you know, in the town specifically. So we'll just say two hockey teams. I, mm-hmm. I referee uh, as a, and my um, bread and butter is a linesman for high school hockey here in the state of Michigan. And I was working uh, a game in a town just south of here. And one of the teams uh, hometown is known for its influence of the uh, Ku Klux Klan back in the seventies. Okay. So, and the Michigan Grand Wizard is out of this particular town at, at one point. So it's known if you're black, don't go to that town, right? Because who knows how they're going to treat you. And they're, they're definitely not going to treat you well. They're not going to make you feel welcome. Now, I want you to consider that this is probably back in uh, uh, the early 2000s when this game was occurring. Okay. So I want to take you back a little bit. This wasn't last month, <laughs> right? So anyways, um, I knew coming into the locker room that I was working with this game and another, uh, I mean, this team and another team. And I thought to myself, wow, isn't this ironic that I'm going to work this game? And I was making kind of light of the situation. I said, I can't wait until National Anthem until I pull my lid off. And I'm going to stand there just like this, proud as it can be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Them dudes from how aren't going to know what to think. Mm. <laughs> I put the lid back on my head as after that process happened and nothing uh, in particular happened in the game, but it was really a high strung game. I mean, these two teams were going okay. at it. And so towards the end of the game, things are pretty ramped up. I dropped the puck. I dropped uh, back into my position and it happened to be, I was um, at this particular team I'm referring to their city um, over my left shoulder and I'm watching the game and I've got two players, one right here. I can see him, one behind him. And he, the one that I can see, he's yelling at my partner. You got to get in the game. You got to open your eyes. And he's calling him some shit, you know, and I'm like, Hey, 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 cause I'm working as a line. I'm not going to call make a call. And it's a tough game anyways. And I said, Hey, you got to calm down. You got to get some class, man. And uh, the kid behind him says, Hey, you got to go back to the country you came from. And I was like, whoa, you just say to me, man. And again, I was a bit younger. So I turned around to hell with the game all of a sudden. man. I right. just looked, what did you just say to me? And uh, he realized that I caught him like he must have thought I wasn't going to didn't understand what he was saying, you know. And uh, he looks dumbfounded. Oh, I was talking to the coach. Well, ironically, the whistle blew. And I said, and the coach, assistant coach says, what's going on? I said, hey, I don't know what you what you think, but I know what he meant when he said, I need to go back to the country I came from. That's what your player just said to me. He's, oh, man, he didn't mean nothing by it. Now I'm pissed. I'm mm-hmm. totally out. I'm ready to run out of there, right? Yeah, but I got to be cool. I'm a professional. And my partners came over with the bands and we handled it. They handled it rather. They threw him out. And then in the locker room, my, um, you know, my partners called our scheduler and talked with them, you know, our supervisor. Well, this was an epitaph. How do you write that? And that's what, what I want to talk about as we go on about how my role, how it's involved and what it means, why a role like mine is important. But going back to this moment, it was an epitaph and he wanted to figure out um, how do you, how do we write it up? And next mm-hmm. thing you know, my, my partner's looking dumbfounded. He's like, uh, okay. Uh, I'll tell him. 
and he hangs up the phone. And then I said, what's up? I'm taking my skate top. And he says, he told me that you need to, Rico needs to get a sense of humor. And I was like, whoa, that was the moment of, um, it blew my mind. And to tell you the truth, Dan, that was a moment when I realized all the things that I'd done wrong by, by setting up, it's normalizing people around me to be, be bigots. And it was a come to Jesus meeting for me personally. Uh, mm. Certainly that, and I didn't know what I was going to do first. I was fuming, you know, but just because I was in sense that the person that the one person I needed to support me in the situation um, really turned a, turned an eye on it, which a lot of officials are, are blamed for doing it in situations where race is involved, that they turn the other direction because it's really heavy to deal with. So, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a difficult topic to talk about. So thank you for sharing that story. I mean, mm -hmm. the the difficulty in hearing that story for me too is that I know you had another moment earlier in your refereeing career within those first few months. You kind of referenced it, and your mm -hmm. senior partner at the time told you there are days you can grow up and there are days you can stay young. And yes. moving forward, it seems like you certainly applied that principle instead of like even in the heat of the moment you knew to address the situation tell the superior in that case the player's coach and yeah. you were handling it and there's failure number one of the system and then you go back into the locker room it's being somewhat formally reported and there's failure number two in the system and that's a systemic problem that um you can't help but wonder how did we get here and what's my role in it and what can I do from here moving forward? And I love the way that you summarize that. So it is a good place for us to kind of talk about where you're trying to appropriate your position now. And for those that are listening, uh, Rico now holds the position of director of cultural diversity and inclusion with the Ontario Hockey League. So I, I know we can talk about your role with the Flint Intercity Hockey Program. Mm -hmm. We can also talk about this. I'm sure the message is similar in both cases and what you're putting in towards those programs. So I'll leave it to you as to what you'd like to talk about from here and, and where you're moving in your, in your next chapter of your journey with this because i know it's not over i mean you did a charity <laughs> game just a few years ago with some firefighters and they're they're giving you slurs in that game right so this yeah. needs to keep moving forward I'm, I'm interested where you're taking it so yeah and i appreciate that you know to to recognize um even for me it was, it's difficult as time has evolved i will some say that some things have changed mm -hmm. you're starting to see some diversity and and many levels of hockey certainly you can't ask for diversity necessarily if you're in rural communities or or where the, there just isn't diversity based on where a person lives but what i'm trying to do now is with my new role maybe i should talk about how it came about because i think it's really sure. important um so so i'm fortunate enough to have won the national hockey league's willie O'Ree award as we mentioned and I didn't realize that that was going to be the turning point for Rico. Like he, he could, I could step away from being firefighter Phillips. 
Mm-hmm. Like it was, um, being a firefighter for the city of Flint was my entire identity. Other than I had this side identity with hockey. I sure did. I mean, I was being known for much more towards the end of my career, but internally it was an identity that I've had since I was a little boy. So it wasn't something that I took very lightly, you know, um, looking at retirement. But the role I had and the position that I was in, I knew that the time was coming. I just didn't know how I was going to get there. So I won the award. And when I came home and realized the well of support I had for what I just accomplished for our community, um, I realized I could be something different than Firefighter Phillips. So I decided to retire. Didn't know where I was going to go, what I was going to do. I was just hoping that um, nothing taken from anybody that works at certain box stores, but I didn't want to work at a box store or, you know, all of a sudden just fade out and just do stuff. You know, I was just re- be a retiree, but I still didn't know what that was. And I got some opportunities to speak publicly. And um, I spoke to the Ontario Hockey League's business um, operations um, staff members from all 20 um, franchises in the fall of 2019. It was at their Vision 2020 conference. That's what it was called. And I spoke to them about um, my journey, of course, but also uh, my mindset about how it's so important for each um, organization to reach, to understand their role within a community. Like for me, I talk about the fact that when I look at Flint Firebirds and I talk to those players, I say on the front of your jersey, it says Flint first. When we say, we talk about it, it says Flint first. That means you represent me and our community, no matter what happens. All right. It's going to whether it's success or failures, whether it's um, struggles or triumphs. Right. So what I want you as a player to do is not go to our suburban area where they have you living and building, which I understand it's safer there. I don't that way. You don't have to worry about things. You got families that are hockey minded, hockey oriented, but don't stop there. Come inside our community learn what our community is. So it's the same in London or any other town. And so um, the role that I was serving at that conference is to say, um, there's ways to look to the under-indexed, non-traditional hockey fans that are out there. And I want to help do that if I ever can. You should do it. This is why it's important. It's it's bigger than just your marketing model. Your marketing model will be, um, because like I expressed to them, the OHL is great hockey for a family. It is so mm-hmm. great. They don't, I mean, I don't even think the fans half understand what they're seeing in front of them, potential NHL stars until they become stars and go, Oh my gosh. Like for us, Ty Deland was playing now. He's getting playtime and he's a big part of our, um, the building rebuilding of or building, excuse me. It's not a rebuild, but building of the Flint Firebirds. So, so anyways, fast forward, I'm doing all these opportunities. As you talked about getting, I went to Ottawa, Ottawa Senators invited me there. I mean, that's incredible for me to go nine hours to the East. That's how I looked at it. Like I'm nine hours away from home in a place I never even imagined going to. And they're treating me as if I won the, like I'm an, uh, an Ottawa, you know, a person from Ottawa, um, you know, the way they, they, during the game, Welcome to the game with the Ori Award. I mean, it was it was awesome, man. I was in a box and we brought a, a team of kids from Flint that were four or five of the kids were. Oh, from wow. Flint. That's awesome. Yeah. They were from our program and they were, we brought their whole team with them. That way they could play in a tournament. And that was the idea behind bringing them. And they brought, had a, a suite for us and, and it was filled with food and beverages and the kids were treated awesome. And like I said, they stopped during the game, that Ottawa Jersey, 
that's right behind me. <laughs> yeah, it's signed a team signed jersey, and that's the reason I'm telling you all this stuff is because I was on this roll, and I wasn't sure where it was going to take me. Mm-hmm. And then the pandemic hit, and bam, what am I going to do now? I was like, ah! right. and I was off the edge, and so there was nothing I could do. I just kind of sat quiet, and then George Floyd mm-hmm. was killed. And like so many people across North America, I don't care what color you are, but especially black people, you had this sense of, I have to do more than just say enough's enough and raise my fist and, and put a hashtag out. I have to turn words to action because um, this isn't, this isn't, this is not, we have to change the narrative. And so um, to be honest with you, I, I reached out to Willie O'Ree himself. I'm fortunate I have, I was able to give him a call and, and we spoke and I was telling about my struggles. Like I felt so lost what was happening in in the world right, right at that moment. And he said, Rico, your voice is in hockey and that's where it needs to be heard. Mm-hmm. You better speak up. And so I don't know, it just inspired me to contact David Branch, the OHL director, I mean, commissioner, excuse me. And um, he contacted me and we spoke. He said, this is so ironic we were just talking about we need to come up with a, a, a better way, a plan that we can get someone to help us with. And then you emailed me, said it was divine intervention. That kid is what he caused me. And so it turned into a beautiful opportunity for me. It, it was a creation of the position of director of cultural diversity and inclusion. And so now what my, my role is, is to help. So the way I view it, Dan, is this. Okay. As you know, um, the sport of hockey is predominantly white, predominantly affluent, and it has to do with the price or the cost, excuse me, a lot. Most, it's probably the biggest barrier that anybody can take, you know. You can't deny it. It's absolutely a factor in our sport. Yeah, and that, I think that divides a lot. And, and that is not to say that people of color or black people are poor so they can't afford the sport. What it boils down to in a lot of cases is, Uh, Minority families take a look at their family budget and they have a child that's trying to do something fun and extracurricular. It's called hockey, especially if we're talking about Canada, it's almost the norm. So um, this child is having fun, excelling, doing really good in uh, single A year, now double A years, going good. Now all of a sudden it's like, hey, got this great uh, elite camp coming up. and if you go to that camp more chance, then you're going to get a chance to go to a triple A tryout. Well, mom, can I go? Uh, well, no, you, well, you're lucky you go play hockey. All right. right. With our, right. On the other side, and I'm not saying this is, I'll say this happens on a lot of occasions. A white family has the same situation and the reality of the fact that there is a chance they can actually dream of it as compared to a black family being able to dream of it legitimately happen for that 1% that they're willing to put their credit card up, no matter what it takes, I'll get another credit card. So their child gets his chances. Next thing you know, their kids got a fast tracked up the road. And this kid over here is going, well, I still love hockey and that's okay. But the problem is that's where there's a divide right there. All right. Mm-hmm. So that's why there's only 18 black players in the national hockey league. Um, that's why there's very few um, BIPOC players in general. Mm-hmm. It's because of what sacrifices have to be made in order to excel in the sport and to be part of the, the who you know in the sport. And so one of the things that I've looked at for more than one way is not just OHL, but I'm also on the um, 
advisory committee for or advisory board, excuse me, for the um, Hockey Diversity Alliance. Yeah. And so with that being said, we noticed that was a gap. These guys know they've been there. And so when I first got to the OHL, I decided, and of course, uh, David Branch endorsed and, and said, absolutely, this is the route we should take. I um, interviewed seven recent players of color from the OHL. So I can get their um, perspective of their experience from a cultural standpoint. Mm-hmm. And just say, what was it like in the O? I went all the way back to their childhood playing. When they first started, who they played for, where they play, I want to know about their town they grew up in a little bit. So I kind of got a gauge that they grew up in, in a suburban, rural, you know, inner city kind of situations. And it was, and it ran the gamut, to be honest with you, of the players that we asked. Um, and one thing that, uh, a few things that came out that I think is very important um, that I've been working on, all of them, um, with the exception of one, said that the first time that they'd heard a racial taunt or slur was between the ages of eight and 11, and it was at an ice rink. And it was not within their neighborhoods, not at their homes, not within any other peer group, but ice hockey. And it varied from their own teammates to opposing teammates, or, you know, it could have been adults. There might've been, there was one that had adult situation. So, so that told me that the, that when we work on diversity, equity, inclusion at the 16 to 20 year old rate age, rather, when they're in the Ontario Hockey League, we already have some players that think that that's the way that it goes, right? Mm-hmm. So, because the standard has not been set when kids are coming through and parents are coming through the doors for the first time and every single year all the way through, that standard isn't maintained and is brought in and is reemphasized and everyone's kept to a standard on it. I mean, in other words, if you violate it, we're not just going to suspend you. That's not what we're after. We're after helping to educate you to understand why what you said or did is outside the lines, right? Mm-hmm. So this is what I found out. And, and uh, I've also tried to apply it in my, in my own state um, for the same effect. But I've been able to speak to uh, the North Ontario Hockey Association, um, Waterloo Minor Hockey Association, Kitchener Minor Hockey Association, um, Try to think of those other groups that I've spoke to in the Ontario, um, you know, in Ontario in minor league hockey. And the idea is to start to express to them that <clears throat> here's an example. Um, there's a rule team in uh, somewhere in Ontario. I don't know a town, any town, so I can't call any out, but you know, them in your mind. And there's no, no people of color that live anywhere in the town. So, so you got a good, pretty good little program going. We play hockey with this other little neighboring town that's really similar. And then, um, so we don't really worry or talk about, you know, BIPOC people or the standard that's met when it comes to how we don't say certain things or we're allowed to say certain things, however you want to coin it, um, that we don't, you know, there's a standard with hate speech. And so then all of a sudden at 10 years old, they go down and they play a team in Toronto where it's a diverse tournament and all of a sudden something goes wrong. I hear you. And so then the problem with it isn't just that, Oh, this is a teaching moment for this kid. It is, it really is. And they, they'll have to learn at that moment. The problem is there's a victim involved. And that's what you, that why I, when I tell my stories, what you understand that I felt victimized, I was a victim and because you feel alienated alone and you either want to fight or you want to go cower away 
And it's hard to figure out a balance of that. Mm-hmm. And so me recognizing these things, I'm trying to express it in as we come along. And now I'm just trying to um, push that conversation to our, our players within the Ontario Hockey League. So like we've had some courageous conversations with a few of the teams where we'd sit down and I would tell my story and then create dialogue so that players felt welcome and open to talk about things that bother them. Like how come um, um, in certain hip hop music, they use the N word, but we're, we're not allowed to use it. I mean, you get, I get asked questions like that and that's a hot topic question. Right. And you want me to answer it? I can answer it right now, Dan, if you want. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I definitely love to hear like how you go about answering those questions like the yeah, PE so. teacher would need to explain to keep kids sex ed for the first time. It's like, oh, all right. How yeah, do I yeah, handle yeah, this yeah, one? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. It, well, only because um, while I was ready to open up dialogue, I guess I didn't think about where the questions could could send me and I, I mm. be honest with you, I do know uh, that that's an issue, but I didn't think about how I would answer that. You know, if someone were to ask me, um, appro- you know, what the question is, what's the appropriate answer? So I'll be honest with you, I answered it and then I did research after I answered it. And by that, I meant I asked other black people, what, how would you answer it? And I had a couple people that helped me. Uh, well, two people that I asked didn't really have a good answer for it. Like, I don't know what I would have said. And, and um, I had one person who was a former um, firefighter, he's a uh, retired firefighter as well, a colleague. And he's from, he's a black man. The other two guys were black men. One I was a um, uh, black man that I know from Minnesota, who's originally from Canada. He's, he's a hockey guy. The other man was my barber who I've known over 30 years. I go see him every two weeks. Doesn't do bad. He blends in my, <laughs> right? Every two weeks, I see him. I mean, he went to my retirement party. That's how close we are. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, he's got probably a lot of intimate secrets on you over the oh, years. Yeah, so yeah. that's a guy you want to keep close to. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> that's my journey. That's what's cool about him. He's known me since before as a firefighter. Mm. So uh, he's cut my hair. He got cut my hair to give me my interview. So mm. I tell him, without you, I might not have gotten it, man. <laughs> <laughs> there you uh, go. Anyways, um, so the way I answered the question, oh, the, the person that the other person I want to point out who he was, because it's important to know. So he's a black man that was, like I said, a colleague of mine, and he's from Mississippi and grew up, born and raised in Mississippi, came up to Michigan when he was probably somewhere around um, 25 or so. He's okay. 50 so anyways, we we combined our, our answer together. Here's a way I'm going to try to give a brief history lesson. This I know I talk a lot, man, but I want to give you a brief lesson. So basically, um, in history, black people were brought to this to uh, North America, but United States in particular, as slaves, as we all know. And they they're brought here by Europeans and the the um, Latin term for for black is Negro, as many people know. So they're actually called Negros. And so instead of giving black people names because they were just um, basically used for as slaves, they, they didn't want to have to name them all. They just called them Negros or Negroes, and Negro turned to Negro, right? And so as as uh, language evolved throughout the 1617, now closer to 1800s, 
the Negro turned to the term nigger. And I hate to use that term. I know it makes people feel uncomfortable, but that's the actual truth. That was an uncomfortable term then, and it still is to this day. And so that term was used to describe everyone instead of giving them a name, you know? And so it was like, it was a damning oppressive word. It really Mm -hmm. hurt people, black people. And so as time went on, I wanted to push you forward to the, um, because it did not go away, uh, even as um, black people were were free um, from slavery, never went away, it did not go away. It was used for the same damning way. And so lo and behold, the 1960s come along and the civil rights um, movement started, was turned to the Civil Rights Act. And for the first time, black people in in um, US in particular, had a chance to be free for real, like real citizens could vote and had a say-so, could hold office and, and all these things that they were held back from and oppressed from. So as that movement turned into um, the situation, especially when you look at uh, uh, Martin Luther King's um, assassination, that caused this rage. And so this rage turned to people saying, well, you're no longer gonna call us this term anymore. And because we've been, uh, black people have been called it for so long that they begin to say, well, they, they got used to calling each other that. And then they said, well, that's our term of endearment. Now, whether it's right, wrong, or indifferent, whether you believe it or not, I believe that's the best way or not, that's basically what happened. So as time went on evolved, what you get is the, the 80s where you got comedians using it every t- day. In the 70s, I can go back to then, you, you started to hear it in sitcoms, but you only heard black people saying in sitcoms. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so then the 80s came in and started to become more normalized as a term, especially as rap music took, took hold. And then when rap music turned to hip hop music, that's when all of a sudden we had these different um, effects of the music, like from different spaces within North yes, America. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So then that brought in the word to get normalized with, with the term that you'll hear. If you listen to a term in the music, it's 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 not the same term that was used um, many, many years ago, if that makes sense. So what I tell the young people is this. What is your agenda? And that's where my my we collided, my my colleague and I. What is your agenda? What reason outside of this song? I mean, yeah, like people are giving you this opportunity to use the word because they're expressing themselves. Well, outside of that music and that song, what is your agenda? Why would you have, what reason would you have to use it? It is not in your culture. It isn't something, it's only a demeaning word if it's used in your culture. So why use it just because we get, we should be able to use whatever word we want to. We, the F word is a word that we have out there. Should we use that in front of our grandmother? Right? So, right. so think of your grandmother when you think of using that word, maybe, and you won't use it. I mean, that's, that's basically what I came up with. And that's where what my role has become is this opportunity to change language. Mm. I didn't know that's what it was going to be, but it's changing language. What we say and why we say it matters. And that while we say freedom of speech, that only really matters if we're talking against our government. It does not mean you have the right to say whatever you want to say to me and not think that's not going to affect me in a way and I'm not going to lash out. You know what I mean? Good point. Yeah. And I, I like the way that you're phrasing your 
your role? Cause it's not easy to, and it's a new one for you too. So I'm, I'm sure you're still working on your elevator speech there, but I, I can tell from the way that you speak that you're very affected by quotes or mm-hmm. things that have been passed on to you over time. And yeah. it seems like, you know, one that you've used before that I think speaks to this, um, situation well too maybe is seek to understand as aggressively as you seek to be understood absolutely and another one is be wise about your smarts (laughs) and so i'm just i'm curious it sounds like you've had significant influence from people either like a, a senior official during a game when you're 17 or you're looking for some guidance and you give Willie O'Ree a call and yeah. he, he, he helps you find your voice within a movement that you want to be a part of. So what's the method that someone like myself or within the communities that you're going to, you want to see them take that approach as well? Well, you hit it right on the head. Those two quotes that I used um, publicly, it it certainly is mind stimulating. And that's what I try to do is be this. um, I don't want to be so grandiose, say an inspiration, but I really want to be an example of um, a freer way of thinking, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, it was probably um, I had some stumbles within my own career in the fire department where I felt betrayed by colleagues after I put my heart and soul into that fire department and what I did for, for not only our community, but our fire department. And mm-hmm. so it was a defining moment for me when I felt like, you know, including um, our city administration kind of left me out to, to dry as if I was suddenly just a number. Mm-hmm. And when I recognized that I was having some internal battles, like I was being vengeful and hateful. I wasn't trusting the people for the first time in my life. And it really, uh, was a couple of years where I was um, I was struggling to be happy, and my wife will tell you that that seemingly I was always on edge and angry of my kids, and I recognized that she hit it right on the head. Something's not right, and it was my mindset, and I had to recognize. And thank God I had hockey mm-hmm. because hockey was my avenue to get away from the firefighting scene so so aggressively to where it was my everything. I was having to redefine myself as being more than one dimensional. And even though I was multidimensional as a firefighter, I wasn't multidimensional as a person, really. Uh, even though I had hockey with me, I had to, I had to really figure it out. And so that's when I started the inner city youth hockey program, 2010. It was that, that's what started that movement for me, like that, that moment movement for me, like I'm going to make an impact a different way. I can do things different. And so when I when I use those quotes as like as a guiding lines um, lights, I look to people. Um, so I started listening to reggae music, right? Not because of ganja, but because of the mindset <laughs> was behind the music, right? <laughs> and because there there's just a different way of looking at peace and, and unity and one love, you know. As mm-hmm. it was real. Um, cliche but that's what i started doing i literally changed my whole i stopped listening i know people probably surprised maybe people aren't because of my vernacular but i stopped listening to hip-hop as much i stopped listening to i was listening to heavy metal at at one point in my life and just what i was trying to do was find an inner peace and so when i was able to do that and get the same rewards through hockey that i was getting as a firefighter 
by helping these kids learn our sport. And it wasn't about any award, that's for sure. It was these rewards that I was getting, man, working with kids and showing them that there's something else out there that you can be a part of. There's a new experience for you. That's really what it's been about. It, it certainly, to me, seems like this award has been a call to action. Like it's, it's kind of more like, okay, I'm doing, it's, it's a recognition. I'm doing the right things, but I'm, I'm not nearly done yet. And I need to figure out where I'm going to be in this. And I think uh, one example I really want to touch on, because I'm very proud of, I think the stance that is going about this. And it's a little bit of an awkward situation to talk about just because I know of your affiliations with the NHL, but the Hockey Diversity Alliance as well is something you're a part of. And they've recently chose to change the way that their partnership is viewed between the NHL and the HDA. I'd mm. like to think it's because they'd like to recognize that, hey, there's multiple ways to go about influencing change in the DEI. There's multiple conversations that need to be having, need to be taking place. The NHL can do their thing. The HDA can do their thing. It's going towards a common goal, but one's from a certain perspective. One's from a, maybe the NHL could be more fan driven. The HDA is more player driven. I I bring that up because I, I want to recognize that it's okay that the partnership went away because it doesn't mean that they're not working towards making change and both in a positive way. I'd like to see them get together again. Um, But I do want to just point that out. And I'd like you to talk about that if you'd like to as well. Yeah, um, I think it's something to talk about. And I appreciate you noting that I, without the NHL, I don't have the Willie O'Rea Community Hero Award. And those same people that provide their award provide the DEI for the NHL. So um, I don't, um, I'm not going to, you know, bite the hand that fit, feeds me, that's for sure. And I've been very clear with them. When I was asked to be a part of the advisory board, I, I, that was under the assumption that we would be working at the NHL at that point anyways. But when it came down to the nuts and bolts, I think um, from my perspective, it is best that that we're separate because the NHL is doing an excellent job at what they are doing for what the NHL's best interest. Okay. Is it the best interest of the players and the evolution of BIPOC players into the league? Apparently not by what we see. We, we, when we talk about Willie O'Ree going back to 1958, being the first black in the NHL. And we fast forward, there's only 18 in 2021 that are actually black hockey players. And and so that hasn't, that's not far enough. And right. even when we talk about um, the cultural diversity task force that started in 1998. So let's, let's take it from, from that point. And that's not to discredit them because again, that was, that's the model of the Flint inner city youth hockey. Program. Totally. Like they're, they, and, and like, they're like, Hey, can't, but we can, we can send O'Ree your way. And you're like, hell yeah, let's get yeah. it. So, yeah. Yeah. So. Are you kidding me? Dude, that was like golden. So totally. So again, that is a very important role that they're providing. And I think for the fans, it is important that they see that, but the players mm-hmm. are missing this, this avenue that I spoke about earlier. And I think what I see happening is the HD filling in those gaps. Okay. So eventually they will merge. They'll marriage again. I think what was going on is um, 
there had needed to be maybe a little bit more uh, in the way of organization with the HDA for the NHL and vice versa. They, they, the HDA is saying, looking at the NHL, say, hey, we've got it going on. And, and it just decided to go this way. And I think now uh, what you'll see in the next short period of time, like within this week, you'll see an announcement that the HDA is actually going to start to turn those words into action. And um, I'm excited for it. And I can't tell it to you until it's announced. But but um, so like my role is grassroots programming. Like, yes. So, so I'm taking the players ideas who are playing and doing what they're doing in this world right now and bringing it down to the grassroots level so that we can make these effective change. So like for Rico Phillips from Flint, Michigan, with this little inner city program to be able to express and expand uh horizons across north america is it's 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 beyond a dream for me personally i mean i never even dreamed of being able to take my show on the road like this and still i got my show here in flint so yeah a lot of work now but uh, i love it and and i appreciate you adapting to these changing times too because i think it's great the grassroots comment was great because i love how you're recognizing like you know what if my goal here is to introduce more of my inner city community to the sport of hockey it doesn't necessarily have to be on the ice if that's going to become more of a difficulty for us moving forward so your your program is also branching out into providing floor hockey ball hockey whatever you want to call it um, opportunities that's also important because we know that that funding is getting cut from just the general physical education part of a curriculum in school so this might be like i remember growing up and everyone in my class being like oh this is finally hockey i'm like yeah this is what i've been playing like my whole life and (laughs) but if you take that away then no one ever gets to know hockey ever gets a stick in their hand ever and so i'm glad that you're recognizing that this is not like an ice hockey thing just as the hda doesn't have to be with the NHL, but I, I love that they are working together. I love the, the culture right now that's taking yeah. place. I love I reading that. Uh, I think it was either yesterday or this morning, Toronto Maple Leafs are now the second official partner with the professional women's hockey players yeah. association. Yeah. I've seen that too. And I'm having conversations with other people in the blind hockey community right. about trying to build partnerships and affiliations between professional NHL clubs like the um, Vancouver Eclipse or mm-hmm. sorry, the Denver Eclipse and the uh, Colorado Avalanche. And why doesn't that partnership exist for all clubs for blind hockey all over? Just like right. why isn't there more women hockey partnerships like the PHPWA? You see where I'm going with this yeah, and stuff like exactly this. So I'm glad to hear that this is happening. And yeah. Well, I can tell you this, Dan, that um, it is happening and it's even expanding my horizons. For so That's for good. I've had to learn um, a whole different um, genre of people, the LGBTQ plus mm-hmm. community. And um, recognizing my own biases um, was incredibly important, though. I think what's so important about being able to do that is say that I'm a human, too, just like you. And I don't expect you to be, you know, flawless and know all this stuff, especially anybody. I don't care who you are. And but what's been great about it is realizing there's some great people that they they are 
they're all about the exact same thing that I'm about. You know what I mean? Just wanting to go play hockey and have a good time. It's the greatest sport in the world, man. And it has a lot to do with all this cool skills we have. But going back to what you say about the um, floor hockey real briefly. Yeah. One thing I want to say is real important that I had to note is that because hockey is so far removed from our community and many communities like ours is that I had to bring hockey to them. And it still hasn't even been successful just yet. I'm still in the works. But I'm working with community uh, residential buildings where there's lower income people and say, if we want your kids to be a part of our floor hockey program. And then we'll bridge you over to our uh, nice program. Mm-hmm. And if you got the right structure, go on to a, an actual team. If not, mm-hmm. you can go back and play floor hockey all year round. That's going to be a year round thing because floor hockey is easy. You know what I mean? In the sense of equipment and organizing it and stuff. So it's, it's, there's a lot going on and I'm looking around um, Sportsnet just put out a great um, video overnight that, that spoke to, you know, it was the black history moment, but what the, what it spoke to is that the change is occurring and that it isn't, you know, I want to say this too. Here's one thing that I made very clear about inclusion to white um, middle-aged or older men in particular. Because I can only imagine they feel like, oh, you know, they're coming from every angle. Everybody's out to get what I've got, whatever that is. Right. I don't know what that is. But here's the way I look at it. We're not asking or BIPOC people are not asking to push you out of the way. Get out of our way. We're coming. It's our turn. It's not that. What it is is, hey, we see you eating at that table. What are you eating? Scoot over so we can eat with yeah. you. you know, come over to our table and we'll show you what we eat, too. Let's all eat together. Stop eating at that table and looking down your face to see, oh, they're not eating what we're eating. No, we got camp, you know, we got the best. Let's share our ideas and we're going to be much, much stronger for it, man. If we can do this in hockey, we can do it in our society. Totally. And you know what? The food at my table is just as good as the food at your table. You Absolutely. just need to try it. You know, yeah. you just need to yeah. get uh, it's an, and just to keep the metaphor going for some people it's an acquired taste sometimes yeah. they need a little bit of time to get used to this and um i think that's important that. too you know yeah. and i said that. that is very important to know i i know we're at the hour do you have more time i don't want to well, yeah i have more time yeah. so so the other thing i wanted to get your opinion on was now, after saying everything that we just said about being diverse and inclusive, are you familiar with the team team next gen that took place in a, a hockey tournament in Boston over the summer? Um, yes, I am. Okay. I'm, so yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to let our listeners know what I'm talking about. And then I would like to have your opinion on that. So basically what happened was uh, USA hockey got involved with putting together a team that was uh, out of the Eastern seaboard of the United States to compete in a hockey tournament that was going to be held. And they took it as an opportunity to showcase the ability of people of color that they were really good at hockey. And not only did they do that, they went four and zero in the tournament and won the tournament. And I was reading a lot of like what it meant to the players to have other teammates, not, not just a line mate, but a whole team of people of, of the same or similar background as you both racially and economically. And so I think it's important to recognize that 
there are reasons why all black or all minority teams should and can exist within the larger picture of becoming diversity equitable and inclusive. So any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely I do. Uh, um, as, it's, uh, as that team showcase, as you said, um, that all any player wants is an opportunity to prove themselves. And the opportunities are so limited in, in the minority world right now, in, in the world of ice hockey. And I think it has a lot to do with people um, above um, being concerned for some reason. I don't know why they wouldn't want the best product on the ice because that's really what matters. Um, but, but to so, see it showcased, um, not only did it do something for that team, but it did something for the black community. Like, I don't think many in the black community had, um, had the, had ever seen anything like that before. Yeah. Um, you know, an all black team, you know, and for me, like for me personally, as being a, a, a person of color, um, in my entire, um, hockey fan days, I always look for the player of color, right? And he's, I, I root for him just because there's so few and I, I don't care what team he's on. I've mm -hmm. always rooted for him. Whether, I, you know, he's against, sometimes when he gets, I get a little, because I do players tail the other day for scoring this awesome, uh, it's awesome assist on the Red Wings. But anyways, um, but I still was rooting for him and I still do to this day. So to be able to root for an entire team was a special moment, including the coaching staff. And it just, it proved that, that things, um, can change and should change. Should there be all black hockey teams? Absolutely. If if the dynamics are there and they're competitive to because no one wants to put an all black hockey team out to be walked all over because that's mm -hmm. the exact opposite of the effect that you want, right? You want them you want to show that we're competitive. And that's that's not to diminish anybody's idea of what a good hockey team or a bad hockey team is. But when you get on these national levels, um, and you're showcasing, it is important to bring out the best of the best. And the note that there's that many that are that good um, shows the progress that has been made. And I think that's the point of your question. Mm -hmm. Note the progress that has been made. Um, and you have to say it's been at the grassroots level. They can't get there without starting one day. Will, will we see ultimate inclusion? That's what I think we're going to witness in the short come and what we hope to see. Um, you know, whether it be black general managers, whether it be um, obviously black coaches and black equipment managers and trainers. Um, I say black, but I mean people of color, you know, mm -hmm. always in these key positions and you're starting to see it happening and we'll see how well, um, you know, leaders adapt to that and <laughs> put it that and way. I, I, I appreciate you noting that because it's something that I've been very impressed with over the last year. I'm, I don't know, maybe a little, I just want to, I want to make sure that the people uh, and the leagues and the organizations appointing these positions are very interested in doing this from like a, a, a true passionate level mm -hmm. rather than trying to address it more at a, uh, uh cultural like uh performative yes exactly <laughs> level yeah, and that's what i was concerned with my role was going to be mm -hmm. and it has been everything but that it, and to be honest with you i was I, I received calls from some influential black people in hockey that said hey be forewarned and it, it, at first i was kind of like what be forewarned but i was 
I understood. It just took me a little bit to understand what they were talking about. And I see what you're saying. We don't want to put people of color in places just because of people of color. We want to put people of color in places because they deserve to be there and because they're the right, they deserve the opportunity. And that's what they were missing before. Um, <laughs> I think what I'm, I'm trying to say too, is that I think it's important to put those uh, people of color and people of minority and women and in those positions because they have so much to offer in terms of value beyond what even someone of a typical I, white background could could understand. I understand and, exactly what you're saying. And I I love that people like uh Blake Bolden, for example, who, mm-hmm. you know, first pro-black woman hockey player, but is also involved with uh the LA Kings. But I also love that it doesn't have to be someone who I would consider like a superstar um, also now starting to feel like they're empowered to make a change. And yeah. I, I'm, I don't mean this as a slight to his talents, but I just mean this as highlighting a person I'm really proud of right now, Jalen Smerick, who yes. I'm sure, you know, from being oh, from, yeah. Um, yeah. I just, I love how he is already uh, and and for those unfamiliar, J- Jalen Smerick is um, a, a prospect player who's also been playing pro now at the AHL and ECH level, which is got to be challenging all in itself right now with COVID times. But he's also using his time and his platform in hockey, giving back to his community right now, not yeah. waiting until later. And I, I love that that is a thing that I see more with people now than in the past. Yeah, you know, Jalen's a perfect example of that. I, I'm so proud of him to know him personally because mm-hmm. there's things about him that I didn't realize until they were kind of exposed, like his um, lunch program that he has in the summer where he, I mean, anybody listen or pay attention to this podcast, listen to us. He makes bologna sandwiches by hand and goes to where homeless live or, or you know, where there you know, groups of them. And, and he's known as the hockey man. And when he t- opens up his truck, he feeds these people legitimate food, you know. And, and this guy isn't in some big contract. He's an entry-level contract player at one time he's doing that. I don't know what he signed recently or if he's re-signed with Tucson. I know he's getting some PT. Mm-hmm. I hope you catch the game today. Um, cause it's free on AHL, <laughs> but anyways, um, he is a perfect example of humility that comes with people of color in a lot of cases, because they do know the struggles. Like if you look at Jalen Smerick and his struggles just to make it to where he got, he, I mean, he's from East Detroit. He's not from when I first met him. I'm like, Oh man, I couldn't wait to meet him. You know, I, I seen that they, they used traded in the Flint and he's from Detroit. I said, you've got to be kidding me. So I called the, um, president of the of the firebirds i say hey i'd like to meet this kid he says, he's coming to flint for the first time today and I went, can you meet be here at three o'clock and i said absolutely so there i am i'm in uniform jalen smerick's there and we meet each other the owner of the team's there and the media <laughs> and our his first picture official picture with the firebirds he's st- he's standing in the middle of us with the firebirds black backdrop I'm on one side of my uniform because the president's like, Hey, I want you in the picture. I'm like, what? <laughs> okay. And so I'm in the picture. And then the owner who looks like, 
Oh, I hope he laughed. But I said, I mean, look, look, his haircut reminds you of Donald Trump. So I'll put it that way. <laughs> On the other side, though, and is looking like, what the hell? I can tell you, I said, what the hell is this? My first day in the rink, and this is the, who are these guys? Yeah. Well, obviously, he knew who the owner was, but he's probably thinking, who's this guy? But I, I, I forged an incredible relationship with him. And when I got to know him, I said, well, where are you from, Detroit? And I'm thinking the suburb. He says, from East Detroit. I said, East side of Detroit? <laughs> you see, I went to Martin Luther King High School. I said, oh, no, kid. You know, mm. I want to know a story. Now he fascinated me. Mm. Not because, but he's an anomaly, of course, but how did you make it? Right. Yeah. It's, it's like, like this is what I'm trying to do. Yes. How did you do it? What was the right. code? Right. right. Exactly. So that, so that we can help other kids get there, right? Sure. He became, for me, um, uh, well, I, we helped each other. So he started coming and doing promotions with me for the inner city program, whether it be come out on the ice and help us when he could, of course, because they're, you know, their schedules, but he went to a couple of schools and I love telling the story. Uh, so he's, he's 18 at the time. And he, you can tell he never really worked with kids, but I say, Hey, come and meet me at the school. It's no problem. I'll be there. So I've been working with kids well over 20 years in fire safety. So I know how to, I'm working with third graders in this classroom. I'm like, hey, everybody. I'm all wound up. And I, I had my uniform shirt on from the fire department. I said, when I'm not in this uniform, I love wearing this one. And I put on probably that flip. Oh, cool. Right? <laughs> so um, I'm trying to talk about what's special about this. And it's about the long sleeves and talk about, well, this is my buddy, Jalen Smith from the Flint Firebirds. He's number five, a defenseman. Hey, he say hi to boys and girls. Hi. Like, oh, boy. And so I'm trying to hype up and I keep him going. I said something else. I said, how long have you been playing hockey? And he says, since I was three. <laughs> Come on, man. So, so far, he's the stereotypical hockey player interviewer. Yes. <laughs> exactly. He was. He was. He certainly was, man. And so... Before, when afterwards I say, Hey man, uh, um, I'll bring it down some, if you bring it up some, yeah, nice. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> and so we met in the middle a little bit, but before it was over, if you were to look him up, you'd see a, a piece done by, um, box Two Detroit and he's in the classroom reading to the, uh, the kids and he had come a long way within a year, um, mm-hmm. to when he signed with the, um, Arizona. So, um, and then he continues and he'll tell you that, People like myself and um, Jason McCrimmon from Detroit, who runs the Detroit Ice Dreams program, which is a very, it's a um, hockey is for everyone program. Mm -hmm. We're people that he looks up to and says he wants to be like. So how honored am I to hear a young man say that? And he's, he's a very deserving captain of, of the team as well. And I feel like that does something when you give someone that uh platform it it sure it just like your award it 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 validates and it's also a call to action right and and they can give that captaincy to other people that will validate and call to action whatever they're passionate about i'm just glad that jason decided to take his passions and apply it to an area that or jalen and and apply it to an area that i was really passionate about because I'm a huge fan of what he's doing right now too, oh, like man. you. And, and so I'm, I'm just very grateful for, for all of this time together. And I want to keep asking you kind of like what you'd like to see 
as some maybe short-term versus like longer-term goals here, or um, maybe some challenges that you faced being appointed your role, starting to go on tour, and then it kind of been taken away from you. And then also who knows when the OHL season's starting up. Right. Um, so in this, in the time that we have left, I feel like it's really important for us to make sure that people understand that, uh, there's ways for us to get involved. And then there's as much or as little as we want to do, all of it can make a difference. So is there some low hanging fruit and some bigger picture things that you'd, you'd like to talk about? Sure. So low, low hanging is, um, getting everyone, other players and staff members on the same page when it comes to what the standard is, what the policies are. But beyond that, let's open up the dialogue for maybe the first time for some of them ever. And what it's going to help create is a, a more um, inviting environment for everyone. So as they start to move forward, they'll start to think differently. It's the idea behind it. And like you said, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, but I think my first goal right now is to kind of make myself known and what my what I believe my role is for the OHL. And that is to, to bring this all together when it comes to um, DEI in particular. And also, um, I think one of the more important things is to become a re resource and an outlet for players um, or anybody for that matter. But whether it's the OHL or HDA, but we're going to speak OHL right now. What I think is important is that players are trying to make it to the next level. And that next level is likely in the show, the mm -hmm. NHL, in their mindset. And so many players um, face challenges because they're being, they're out of their homes for the first time. They're building, yep. they're, in a, they're in environments that, that aren't very nurturing towards development. And while the coaching staffs and the general managers and the billet families try to do their very best, it's still a lot of work for a young person. And so when they're trying to make it to the next level, they don't really want to make any noise about problems they're you know, challenged with because they're afraid that it's going to ruin their chances to be drafted and, and be seen as a serious, um, you know, they want to work on their game and that's all they care about. Whatever else happens just happens. And the problem with that is there's a mental toll that occurs and they don't even realize the mental toll that it takes. It actually becomes performative. Uh, it can affect their performance long-term, but ultimately it can affect their health, their, their full health. And that's the thing that we get concerned about or that I've been concerned about talking with um, David Branch and, and, um, and the leadership at OHL that we want to make sure mental health is the reasoning that's going to help um, help players decide that they can reach out. So when it comes to issues like this, they they think that if they talk to someone, it's going to go up the flagpole. And that's what I've been able to try to provide and say to them that you can talk to me and I'm going to treat you as a person first, right? Help you handle it as a man, young man, and decide who needs to know what needs to know so that you can make your best choices moving forward. If it's something that's way out of bounds and naturally I'm going to help you get through that process so that you don't further victimize yourself or feel further victimized. Um, but um, so that's one thing that I'm, I'm trying to make sure like in the short term that the players and everyone knows what I'm able to offer and that I'm a resource and an ally for them, an advocate, so to speak, that can help them deal with some of these um you know, situations, because let's face it, the worst thing in the world is 
for a coach or general manager, certainly the league, um, I'm going to speak on behalf of the league briefly. I hope I can say this. <laughs> but it's the worst thing in a few years after a player leaves the league and is playing professionally somewhere that an incident finally happens within that point, and then they point back to an incident that happened in the Ontario Hockey League, and that no one in the league knew what happened. The coaching staff didn't have a chance to deal with it. The general manager didn't have a chance to deal with it. No one really knew. And it's not really fair in that sense because we definitely want to say today's the day, this year's the year. Um, we can say it happened in the past, but we know moving forward with the Rico here that we're going to start to really make sure that that's our effort. And then long-term, um, we really want to, I really want to help um, these, the teams. I want to be able to visit each team. Yeah. You know what I mean? So once I can process, I never want to go to Canada so bad in my life. But, <laughs> Anyways, I've been there many times, but just never uh, in this sense, of course. But I want to be able to visit all 20 teams and, and um, visit their cities, though, not just their team, and get to know their towns and where are these, who are the under-index and who, where are some areas that the teams can fill in gaps. Where, like I tried to express to players, um, talk to those folks within um, you know, the, the organization that takes you out to read the kids and say, hey, where are the under-index kids? I mean, I know you want to sell tickets over here to these kids, but where are the kids that we may be able to really influence and impact so you can be like me, you know, if you really work hard. So that's kind of long-term and um, hopefully COVID gets us back on the ice and I can meet some of the guys, but still it's very limited. I mean, I'm going to be on a mask. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know, the way I loved the way that you put that though, and wonderful answer is you get to work with the players short-term and then you get to work with the players in a different capacity on a longer term goal. Yeah, for sure. You know, and I think that's a, a great cyclical message going on in there. And I also know that hockey is a wonderful game. It provides a lot of opportunity to be involved. And Canada is a very multicultural place. Mm -hmm. It's uh, Ontario specifically is incredibly mm -hmm. diverse. So I know you've got a big responsibility on your shoulders with this role, but it also sounds like they've got a fantastic person for this job. And thank you so I, much. I'm very, very much looking forward to us returning to normal, but at the same time, I'm very much uh, looking forward to seeing what new normal is and i mean that not just on the ice but what we mean as an off-ice product of hockey in, yeah. in general so so hockey is, is loaded right up with potential right now um, because of people like you dan who are thinking outside of the normal um uh, that's been ingrained within our souls about our sport you know um we play the sport because we love it. And we know that all people should have the same opportunity to love it and shouldn't have any barriers or blockades other than their, themselves. And we know that cost is involved. And I think that's some of the things that we'll work on uh, on a bigger picture, ways to get corporate sponsorship to lower costs. So kids all across, because we know like indigenous people in Canada, the most racialized and marginalized people in, in Canada. And so there needs to be more opportunities for all, including them and in, in every walk of life to say, Man, that's fun. I mean, I started as a trainer. I didn't know I was going to love hockey. There's no way you would have thought I'd know. But once you're there and you get the opportunity, man, Danny, you know, I don't have to tell you and people listening right now to us how much we love this sport and how much it means to us. And 
It's just about getting so that instead of, um, I'm hoping in 20 years we'll have to have DEI uh, people because we'll be so inclusive that that's really, we don't need that job anymore. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, there's a lot of philosophical ways I could say that too. And probably not any better than what you just said, though. It, it, it's kind of one of these positions that I think, though, even if we didn't need it because society was perfect, we would mm-hmm. still want it to make sure that we are perfect. And right. there is no perfect. So therefore, we right. always need it. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for uh, what's in the road ahead, because I, I got to say, in 20 years time, I'm really looking forward to still uh, well, to be more involved than how I am in the last few. I'm yeah. trying to take an approach now where I've recognized that um, it's my turn to give back to hockey. I played it for very long. And my mind shift around how I can give back has changed. I recognize that it doesn't have to be me lacing up the skates with a whistle around my neck, coaching the next generation. Yeah. I want to do that, but there's other ways that I can be involved and Sounds like you are too, because I know you do that. I know you're still on the ice when you can with your helmet, uh, teaching those kids while at the same time looking forward to traveling around Ontario. So, well, and I think that's what it's about. It is bigger picture thinking because um, while every one of those kids that I've helped, um, I I say supported, getting to opportunities to play, um, they've had to take those challenges on themselves. And so once they, that's what it's really all about for me. Like understanding that this hockey thing is bigger than just we're going around with our sticks and hitting the puck. It's like, there's a lot of challenges that just to play the sport. Right. And so when we constantly overcoming them, it helps you be, be, I mean, I I remember talking to a a referee of a different sport. I want to tell you the sport, but he tried to compare my sport. I referee, you know, he said, yeah, okay. I, I can run up and down the court. Uh, I guess I gave it away. <laughs> I said, can you skate? And he looked at me like, ah, oh, I didn't think of that. So it's, it is a special sport in that sense. And, and I look at the fact that we, Dan, you and I, we can offer much more than just the fact that these kids can learn how to skate. We, we, we know that there's more involved here and there's people that are listening right now. How can I get involved? What can I do? And the first thing I can say is start to think um, broader in your, in your mindset. So you'll figure out ways, um, you know, whether it's a local community program or something bigger where you see a cause and you say, hey, I want to support that cause. And well, how can I step up and do it? And, and uh, what's going to make the most sense for me and most impact? Mm-hmm. Because some people, they just want to do a little bit and say, you know, I help. And some people want to be much more impactful. So there's so many ways and you just have to look for them. Yeah, well said. And just I'd like to add by saying, try to put yourself in their, I guess, skates for a second and realize that uh, what we've talked about too, is there's a lot of barriers to stepping foot on that ice. But then even once you're at that level of getting the player involved, I know that you're working through training and situations to help deal with the objections that come with, okay, yeah, but now that they're good, how do we take them to the next level and still make it seem like it's an as accessible sport as it has been through their journey so far. And so that means that you can help donate equipment. You can uh, look into helping your community with the operation costs of the season. You could look into ice time. 
that goes into it. And, and then if you can't physically donate your money, you can donate your time. And then if you can't do either of those things, you can educate and talk to people. So that's just general advice because I'm leaving it up to all of our listeners like you are to feel empowered to be involved in any way that they can. Because you could design a t-shirt that raises money there. That's something completely off the ice that's still impactful in some way. So um, we'll leave it at that because I love call to actions and feeling like um, everyone can be involved and inspired and included in this movement about inclusivity. Dan, I couldn't have said it any better. You, I mean, you hit all three areas right on the head. If you're listening right now, um, and hopefully we've inspired you some, it, it, today's the day. Look forward to what you can do. You can make a change. You can help, make, help us transform the, the culture of hockey. One person at a time, and then collectively we'll do it. That's right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and speaking with me today. It's been my absolute pleasure. Uh, Rico, your, your, your time and your words are very impactful. I wish you nothing but the best in luck in the road ahead in the skates ahead and all that you'll be doing. Um, and I also want to say that I'm very much looking forward to following up with you about mm -hmm. what the OHL is announcing, what might be happening more diversity related in hockey, um, because we might be working on slightly different initiatives. They're both good. They're both important. And right. they both value checking in with each other because I've gained a lot of value and inspiration just in talking to you. So Perfect. I look forward to the next time that that happens or communicate with you just about um, the initiatives you're, you're working on. So thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you too. I, I like it when like-minded people speak, but also I think we offer some different perspectives. You said some things that made me say, huh. So I think you did well today too, Dan. It isn't just about what, what your guest is saying. Um, you offer a lot to, to the podcast. So, thank so thanks you. again for that opportunity. And I'm sure we'll circle back at some point in time. I promise you. Thanks. All right, pal. 